as uh, you have been seeing, we've been starting off our, or ending our sermons in this sermon series on the kingdom of God with, with stories, with what we're calling kingdom stories, people's testimonies. But we're actually doing it in reverse today. We're starting off with our story this morning, which will be from the Forsbergs. So could you guys come up? We're going to sit up here. The idea, as you guys are walking up, oh, thank you, dear, is um, the kingdom of God, it came when Christ came, and it is coming even today, and it embraces into all of our lives. And so these stories are just uh, witnesses and testimonies to how the kingdom of God has broken into your life, many of you in this room. And so um, thank you guys for doing this. Uh, I had just a couple of questions. And so... um, Whoever wants to start, how did you, well, first of all, how long have you guys been married? It'll be 40, 40 years. years. Okay. You guys don't look that old, you know? Sorry. Um, you could be like my parents, right? <laughs> so then I start feeling really young realizing that. Um, how did you meet Jesus? How did that, how did that happen? I grew up, um, hello? I grew up going to... A Presbyterian church, and my parents taught Sunday school. I said the Apostles' Creed every Sunday morning. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived under the, and all of that. Said it faithfully every Sunday. <clears throat> Had no relationship with the Lord. I attended church with my parents, which I'm thankful for in hindsight. Um, wasn't until I was around 15. I was going steady with a girl who was a believer, and she and I went to probably a Billy Graham crusade-type movie. And at the end of the movie, um, they had counselors that came out front, and a gal said, you know, if if anybody wants to come down and talk, we're here. Well, it was a real tearjerker, so she wanted to go down, so we go down. And we read through like a Four Spiritual Laws book and at the end, it had a sinner's prayer. Well, I said the prayer. I said the words. I asked Jesus into my heart. I confessed my sins. I said I believe that he was the Son of God. So the seed was planted, 15 years old. It didn't really come to fruition until about seven years later when um, I was starting to question what was going on in the world, in my parents' lives, in the lives of people that were their age that we had known in our little town in Orange, Texas, where we grew up, not even a half mile radius of my house were three divorces, a woman committed suicide. These are all friends of ours, all friends of ours. And I'm looking at this thinking, what's wrong with this picture? All these people go to church, they do the right things, they teach Sunday school, but they're obviously unhappy in life. And it just, it, with the own, own issues in my own life and the way I dealt with with women and girlfriends and going from one relationship to another and and I finally had enough and I got down on my knees one night and said, God, I'm on a road to destruction and I don't know how to get off of it and I need your help. And at that moment, that day, I knew something in here had had changed. I suddenly, after having grown up in church, wanted to know what does the Bible actually say suddenly had the motivation to actually read it, and that was the beginning. That's awesome. 
And Irene, with you, did you go to your, you had, you had quite the childhood. Yeah. So. Um, I went to a Catholic church every Sunday, every holiday, every Ash Wednesday. My family went to church. My dad um, had a lot of problems. And I'm not going to go in, into that. And the one person who's supposed to protect you uh, kind of destroyed my life um, with two violent episodes of him attacking my mom um, and me pulling him off of that um, physically. physically um, and uh, then my dad left us when I was, well, he left the first time when I was 13. And then the second time, he left when I was 16 for good. And that just set me on a road of destruction. I, you know, the neighborhood I grew up in was in the middle of a, a national disaster area. We had the National Guard there because of uh, race, riots. race riots and all this kind of stuff. And I joined this, this group uh, called the River Rats. And um, we hung out down at Mountain Lake, and my name was the Ice Queen because when my dad walked out the door, I vowed that no one would ever see me cry. And at the same time, God placed a student art teacher and a student English teacher who were born again in my Catholic high school. And they just, you know, they're like, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. And I would say to them, nobody loves me. You understand? Nobody loves me. I'm not lovable. And, but they just kept sowing seeds and sowing seeds. And let me tell you, ice melts from the inside out. And my heart was a block of ice. That's why people named me the Ice Queen. But these ladies were faithful to sow every day into my life. And one day, I don't know how they did it, they got this group called the Brethren to come to our church. And they were a um, Pentecostal, uh, not Pentecostal, I'm sorry, Presbyterian group of boys who started traveling the countryside singing, and they would stay six weeks in each place they went, and they would uh, rent a storefront. And so they came and they did this concert. And they started playing this song that was, I wish we'd all been ready. And I sat there and I knew if Jesus was to come today, I'd be left behind. Nobody had ever told me that if I was the only person in the world, Jesus would have hung on the cross and endured everything that he endured just for me. And so that day... Even before they gave the altar call, I asked Jesus into my heart. And afterwards, we went up, we prayed with them, and they gave me a Bible. Now, how many of you have gotten a Bible where the pages are brand new and it's stuck together, right? It just doesn't open easy, does it? Well, they handed me the Bible, and I think because I was crying so hard at that point, because I hadn't cried in a long time, the Bible fell open, and it fell open to Psalm 2710, which says, Even though your mother and your father forsake you, I, the Lord God, will take you up as an adopted child. Don't tell me God doesn't know where we are. Don't tell me that God doesn't see you. God sees you. He has seen you 
from the time he formed you in your mother's womb. And he used some of the most horrifying things I've ever witnessed to draw me into him. But it took 16 years for me to believe that God was my father. I would say, you're generically father, but you're not my father. And uh, finally, you know, they were all these touching the father's hearts with the vineyard movement. And I went to conference after conference, and I'd go up, and I'd sit there, and I'd say, okay, I want to feel you as father. Nothing. I came home, and I was so angry. I was hanging up the clothes, and I'm... I thought my neighbors must think I'm crazy. I'm like, why do you hate me so much? And I heard inside of me, will you allow me to prove to you that I'm your father? It was just this quiet voice. And I said, yes. And God took me through my life. And he showed me, see when this was happened, I was present. I, your father, was present. See this? See this? And so it was this long process of him going in and touching places that needed to be touched. But God's a gentleman, and the Holy Spirit is a gentleman, and he will not touch those places unless you give him permission to touch those places. But you know what? Once he touches those places, they're healed, and they become a strength. Just like Jacob walked with a limp. You know, when we have encounters with God... It's, it's just amazing. And I just love his faithfulness. 16 years from the time that Bible fell open till I was actually able to say, God's my father. God loves me. I'm a child of the living God. I'll never forget one Easter when Jesus, when I was reading the Bible and the, and the Lord spoke to my heart and said, where are you? Are you at the cross? Are you at the empty tomb? Or are you where I ended Easter morning? In the presence of my Father, you were the joy set before me as I hung on the cross because the joy was to take God's children back to him. The graves opened up and he took them to heaven and he said, Father, here's your first fruits. And I sat there and cried that Easter morning and I'm like, I'm your, I was the joy set before you as you hung on the cross? You know, it's like the revelation. Every time there's a word in a song, now on a Sunday morning with the word Father, I bawl. Mm. I bawl like a baby Mm. because I know he loves me. Nobody, Satan can't lie to me anymore. I am a child of God, bought and paid for by the blood of his precious son. Amen. Mm. Preach it. Yeah, I think we're done this morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had other questions, but I want that. I want that to sit. Um, thank you for saying that. Amen. Can we give them a round of applause? Thank you so much. That's great. I love hearing those stories. Isn't that great? Yeah. Um, mm, that was good. Thank you, Forrest Briggs. 
Okay, um, we are in week three of our uh, Kingdom of God series. If you have, there's a, a Bible with you, turn to Matthew chapter four, or there are the Red Pew Bibles, page 958, excuse me, 12, uh, yeah, 958, sorry. We will be looking there this morning. Last week, we talked about the unexpected nature of Jesus when uh, he showed up. Um, he left some confusing, uh, a confusing presence. John the Baptist was confused, and we talked about how unex- we should be prepared for the unexpected work of God in our life. Um, today, we're looking at the beginning of Jesus's ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. We're looking at the whole Gospel of Matthew in terms of uh, what it teaches about the kingdom of God in the ministry of Jesus. And so this morning, we're looking at um, his calling of the disciples as well as the healing ministry that he jumped immediately into at the very beginning. So I, I, I debated how to even begin this sermon. Um, just some reminders this morning, okay? Christianity carries with it the natural claim within itself that there is a supernatural reality that comes with our faith, right? I try to do play on words there. It's, it's the, the natural reading, the natural understanding of thousands of years of church history, the natural understanding of the resurrection is that's not natural, right? There's a supernatural activity happening with God's intervention into human history, so this morning, as we continue in discussing the kingdom of God in the Gospel of Matthew, um, we want to take the Bible seriously, okay? Um, I'll just be, kind of be just completely honest this morning. I didn't have this stuff written down. I'll just, I'll just be frank and honest. I've been in ministry for, I don't know, um, vocationally speaking, over 10 years now. And I've preached many sermons. And I've, I've always, I just generally, I have embraced um, uh, yeah, I have my whole life. I know that God can heal and has healed. I've prayed. I've seen people healed in my life. I have never attended a church or even really pastored a church that, uh, really took that seriously though. And it's remarkable when you look at the gospel, just almost on every single page, if you flip in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is out there as he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's also healing somebody. He's casting demons out of people on almost every single page in the gospels, right? And go to Acts, you'll see something very similar. Um, I was looking throughout my notes and things. I have never actually preached a sermon solely on the healing ministry of Jesus and even, quote unquote, a theology of healing, right? And, um, and I've, this has been an immense challenge to myself to say, like, why haven't I done that, right? And it's so, per, it permeates the ministry of Jesus. And so, yeah, you get to hear my first ever sermon, I guess, it's solely about the healing ministry of Jesus. And so we'll see if you show up again this week. I don't know. Um, but here, this is kind of the very beginning of the ministry. Jesus was, he was baptized. Okay, we talked about that last week. 
We, we, uh, you can read the beginning in Matthew chapter 4. He was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. We know that his ministry was one of bringing the kingdom of God in and it coming to direct spiritual warfare with the kingdom of Satan. I mean, immediately he was into the wilderness getting tempted by Satan himself, right? And afterwards, we're going to see that there was just continual spiritual warfare happening between the kingdom of this world and God's kingdom that was breaking into this one. Now, Jesus had moved into the northern region of Israel to begin his ministry. And in 417, um, it, it, this is how he begins his ministry. Matthew 417, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach the same thing John the Baptist preached. Repent, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is near. This was his central message. And now we begin um, uh, seeing the, the ministry begin. What were, the, what were the first things we see Jesus do? And we're going to look at this this morning, beginning in verse 18. Matthew, uh, he, he very clearly is trying to show us something specific in how he wrote his gospel out. And the first thing he wants us to see at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, after his temptation with Satan, that Jesus, being the Son of God, uh, the God, man, 100%, God, 100%, man, he wasn't going to do this ministry alone. The first thing he shows us is that he calls others to join him in his ministry. Look, God doesn't need anything. God is never hungry. Um, he, he never has um, any, any needs in his life. Uh, Jesus would not have needed anything. Uh, he could have done this by himself, but look at what happens. The very first stop Jesus makes in verse 18, it says this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said. In the original, it's like much more emphatic. It's like, come, like, come on, like, chase after me. Like, that's what he's saying, like, chase after me. Like, I'm going this way. I want you to run. I want you to keep up. Like, that's kind of the tone that he says here. Like, come, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. The first thing we see here uh, in verse 19 there is kingdom ministry is a call to become fishers of people. And it's interesting here because the people that he calls to do that, I'll just make a note really fast. Church ministry is people. Church ministry is about people. Right? Anytime the church becomes uh, looking at itself and its own institution or its own branding, whatever, to become the most important thing, uh, they are off mission here. Jesus was never into self-branding, okay? The only person that could have get, gotten a global following or whatever, you know, he, he was not about bringing attention to himself. He was about people, as we just heard today, right? In this story we heard at the beginning, he's after People. The church is supposed to be after people. And it's the most amazing truth here because as this kingdom ministry begins, Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem to pick the best Bible teachers. He didn't go to the ones that graduated from the, the seminaries of the day and said, who are the highly, most highly trained, educated people I want you to be? No, he goes to a lake. There's some dudes out there in a boat who are just leather skin. They're already just sweating and worn out from the day's work. And they're not educated. They're just regular Joe Schmoes. And he says, I want you to come and follow after me. He looked to some very regular people to come alongside of him. 
As Jesus continues his ministry, we'll see dozens of men and women become regular followers of Jesus and sent out to actually do the ministry that he did while he was here. No church is intended to be about a single leader. No church is intended to be dependent on a very charismatic leader. Even Jesus himself, after his resurrection, he departed from this earth and his ministry still continued on. He sent his spirit down to begin filling many people. And as we see the ministry of Jesus, it began multiplying through those people in the book of Acts. Guys, I want to get to a point here where if a bus one day were to just run me over, that the ministry here at this church would just not even miss a beat, right? That we could just keep moving forward. And that's the goal here, right? This isn't, this ministry to do here isn't something on my shoulders. It's on our shoulders, friends. It is the communal work that we are called to in Christ to bear the ministry that he has sent us to do, to become fishers of people. And the great thing about this is that they just immediately responded, right? They responded radically. You can just kind of see them. You know, these weren't like people like fishing with poles. Like these are the, the nets, the big heavy stones that they would have to fling into the waters. And this is hard work, right? You can almost see them like mid-fling and they hear like, come, like chase after me, get up, let's go. They're just like, they just drop it. And they start going. Verse 20, at once they left their nets and followed him. At once. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed after him. Luke says that these two pairs of brothers and their fathers are kind of like a joint uh, business um, uh, together, right? A fishing business here. Yeah, I think these fathers are like, oh man, like we're in trouble now. We just lost our workers. They're gone. They just chased after this guy, right? Uh, this was a radical response. Um, food was scarce in those days, right? Uh, the family business was one you were born into uh, and you carried on that tradition. And we see these people recognizing, uh, we, you know, they're getting to know Jesus, but th there was a radical response. And Matthew wants us to see the radical response and what the cost was to follow. This is a costly response from them. A radical, costly response. They simply heard Jesus' voice and they responded. Now, as he did so, right, he didn't start his ministry in the crowds by himself. He first called his disciples. The next part we're going to read about, the healing part of our service, we don't see the disciples in action, but we can imagine they're right kind of beside Jesus watching him. We talk about discipleship a lot in this church. Jesus brought his new boys alongside of him, his four, James, John, Andrew, and um, James and John, Peter, and Andrew. So let's go. We're going to start this. I want you just to watch and see what's going to happen. And let's see how Jesus began his ministry here in verse 23. The questions we're answering here is, all right, so he, we know this is a, a joint effort here of ministry. And what kind of ministry is kingdom ministry? That was his message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the nature of kingdom ministry? Here's the very first thing Jesus did. Verse 23. He went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, 
And people brought to him all who were ill of various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Let's break this down. He begins in Galilee teaching, right? Preaching the good news of the kingdom. It is important. I mean, for millennia, the church has had preaching as an aspect of their gatherings, right? The teaching of the word, the teaching of the gospel. Yes, that is important and it should not be neglected. But however, as much as it did indeed involve the proclaiming and preaching of the good news, we see it involved much more. We understand that kingdom ministry, we talked about this. this, this is a spiritual battle. That little piece there about demons actually being cast out of people shows in Matthew's mind, he's trying to tell us like there is a lot more than just a sick person walking up. There's spiritual realities kind of happening here in the background that Jesus is coming directly up against with his disciples. We must understand that all Gospel ministry of the church is a spiritual battle. It is a spiritual war against from the kingdom of God and against the kingdom of Satan. And in our Western ears, right, I, I don't think that we, we, we consider this enough. This is a philosopher named Charles Taylor who talks often about how our Western world is, is, is disenchanted, right? Um, due to science and the form of science, we think that, you know, it's so much more mature now to think about, well, no, we just, we can understand anything really in this world. It's just a matter of time before we find out the right, you know, formula to observe the right thing. And it all can just be written about and understood through testing and experimentation. That's the, that's the mature way to view things, right? No, false, right? That's, 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 there's hubris in that. There's arrogance in that. And the reality behind all of this, and I, I guarantee you, if you haven't lived long enough to, to, to see this, you'll see it one day, how that reality is not, that, that science kind of, you know, scientism, if you will, is not sufficient to explain our world around us. There's much more happening, right? I think one of the greatest victories of the devil in modern times is to convince us Right to disenchant this world, to con try to convince us that those things are not real. And as he has that illusion set before us, he's free to roam and free to move. Right? Kingdom ministry is spiritual warfare. Once again, what did Jesus do? He was healing every disease and sickness among the people. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, having seizures, paralyzed, he healed them all. So the question would be, why sickness and he like, why healing? Why was that the first thing that he did? Of all the things he could have done, he preached, he proclaimed, and he healed. It was both happening simultaneously. The question would be why. I want to do a little uh, survey of the biblical story this morning that may help put some color on the black and white today. At the very beginning of the first page of our Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, we know that God, it says God created the heavens and the earth. From God emanates peace and order and unity and beauty and goodness and truth. And it says that it actually came from chaos. Genesis 1, 2 says that the earth was without for, form and void. The Hebrew phrase is tovu bavohu. It means like blah. All right. That's what that Hebrew phrase means. Blah. There was blah. It was just like blah. 
darkness, and there's waters kind of beneath the, the blah mixed into it. For the ancient peoples, waters represented chaos. There was chaos. There was nothingness. There was void. It's hard to put it into English, right? It was just nothingness out there that was disordered, and God brought out of that disorder order. God brought out of that beauty and life and meaning. Guys, just a little side note, God has been in the business of breeding beauty and order out of chaos from day one. In some ways, Genesis 1 is a beautiful kind of pre-preaching of the gospel, right? From the chaos, God brings beauty and order and life. That should be of encouragement for one of you in this morning who needs to hear that. If you feel in your life there's chaos now, God can bring restoration and life out of that, just as he did on the first page of our Bible. When Satan appeared in the garden and suggested and tempted Adam and Eve uh, to eat of the fruits, he essentially wanted to usher humanity back into that chaos, undoing God's beautiful work. Throughout the book of Genesis, uh, his hand was present, all kind of behind the stories, right? The very first recorded event after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden after sin entered the world was a murder, like Cain murdering his brother. Satan doesn't appear, but we can assume uh, there's some spiritual forces at work there, right? That's bringing chaos into the order that God had created, the chaos that led to death between these two siblings, Ever since his curses were mentioned in the Old Testament, uh, we see in Deuteronomy 28 especially, uh, murder and disorder and chaos was beginning to be found in this world. And the idea is that wherever chaos, sickness, death, destructive forces and habits and realities, the effects of the curse are there. Satan and his kingdom and its presence are found. And those things ultimately culminate in death. As Jesus launched his ministry, he immediately confronts these realities. Jesus immediately went to war against Satan by giving the world a glimpse of reversing sicknesses, reversing illnesses, reversing pains and seizures and liberating those enslaved to demon, demon possession. Some of those phrases used here, they're kind of like junk drawer terms that are just covering a large amount of things. You see, a part of the vision of God's kingdom ever since even the times of the Old Testament was for his people and for this world to, be, to get glimpses of what he originally intended, which is a world without these things. Exodus 23, 25 through 26 actually says this, speaking to his people, he says, you shall serve Yahweh your God. He will bless your bread and your water. I will take away sickness from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. So we see it. There's so many more verses. Sickness was consistently related to the curse in this world, either directly or indirectly. But however, as we read, even in the Old Testament, Israel never fully experienced that reality, just as you and I don't ever fully experience that today. Yet it's very clear that God's heart like his heart is to one person and one event and one century as we move forward to his coming. Whenever that day shall come, he will rid the world of it. And that is his heart to do so. And it's also his heart to give supernatural glimpses today of him ridding the world of sickness. 
We know these things are true because we see how Revelation 21 describes the new heaven and the new earth. That's the fullness of the kingdom of God when it shows up in this world and it comes and heaven and earth meet. And, And the fullness of all these things that we're talking about are found. How does John describe that? Revelation 20 verse 4, he describes that future place. He says, in that future day, in that future time, when when the kingdom of heaven meets earth, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. In those times, they will be referred to as the former things. We're still living in those former things today. But yet, as the kingdom of God is inbreaking into this world, we should expect regular glimpses of the kingdom, that kingdom, inbreaking today. If that future kingdom is pain-free and that kingdom is inbreaking today by God's grace, as Jesus showed us, he's going to provide glimpses of that future kingdom today through the relieving of people from pain now. It is part of the good news. Like he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and this is directly just attached right to it. And all in all, as we said, this is spiritual warfare at work. I want you to listen to Luke 10 verse 8. This is the time when Jesus sent out 72 of his followers to engage in ministry. 72 of his followers he sent out to engage in ministry. In kingdom ministry, this is how he describes it. He says, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, Eat what is set before you, heal the sick, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. When sickness is is healed, he says, look, the kingdom just showed up. It's really near to you right now because you were just healed. Do you see this? That was directions given to his disciples. Now, all those people that were healed, they're not with us today. They died. And maybe some of them died from sicknesses, right? We don't know. But in that affliction, in that moment when they were healed, the message was clear. Your healing is a sign that the kingdom of God is in breaking into this world, has just broken into your life. And it was even a part of their evangelism. It was a part of how they shared the good news of the kingdom that was coming. And how do we know that Jesus uh, no, uh, how do we know Jesus loves us and died for us? Well, believe and don't just hear about it. Let me show you how much he loves you. And I want to pray that he heals you now to show how much he loves you. And this is extended to the church. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9, the chapter that lists all the gifts that come from the Spirit, um, that there is plural gifts that include plural healings, gifts, multiple gifts, different variations of healings. We are given through the Spirit the ability, um, uh, all by divine power, to, to pray for others and be healed through our prayers. It's considered a gift from the Spirit. We'll also spend some time at the end of our service today looking at the, in the letter of James, a very uh, other famous passage, James 5, 13 through 16, when we are asked to pray for those who are sick to receive healing. But we'll end on that at the end of our service today. Now, it is rather easy to be informed um, right now as a church concerning uh, the kind of ministry 
we should have here. I want to be a kingdom-minded church. Looking at all these things and finding kind of the, the balance of just gathering all these pieces. We have many months looking through the kingdom of God, gathering all these pieces and saying, I want this to characterize Emmanuel Church. I want us to be a kingdom-minded uh, church that our ministry is shaped by these realities. And certainly it seems that the Holy Spirit has equipped us for this, even commanded to pray for those who were sick. But this is not without its mysteries. Because we know not everyone in this life receives healing. And it's important that we don't dance around that. We don't make up you know, excuses as to why. It, there's, there's mysteries. There's tensions within this. There's a couple of things of how we know this is true. Paul had a bodily ailment, Galatians 4. A Christian named Trophimus in 2 Timothy was supposed to travel with Paul, got ill, and Paul left him behind because he was sick. Say, Paul, why didn't he heal him? Well, I don't know. He, he said, you're sick. He can't come. Stay back, right? Um, Epaphroditus was sick. Philippians chapter uh, 2, I believe. There are many, there's more, and many of these apparently were not actually healed. Some eventually were, but even the Old Testament, Elisha, who his bones were a dead, a guy fell dead on top of Elisha's bones and he was resurrected back to life. How did Elisha die? From an illness, it says, right? There's no real simplistic answer here as to when we engage in, in, in praying for the sick, why sometimes people are not healed. I don't buy the whole, well, you weren't really believing because Jesus said, with the faith of a mustard seed, a little bit of faith, we can move mountains, right? I don't, uh, Lazarus was dead. He didn't have any faith because he was dead, and Jesus raised him. You understand, right? There's a lot of this that's just it's in the Lord's hands. But as you say this, we recognize medicine is a gift from God. Paul asked Timothy to take a wine as a medicinal for his stomach ailment. Uh, some Christians took these verses and they built hospitals because of it. I mean, think of all the Presbyterian, those kind of hospitals that still exist today in the cities. Christians built them because they wanted to bring healing and be a blessing to our world. And so, no, we don't deny healing and, uh, you know, uh, doctors and, and science, the advancement of science to provide healing. And of course, we embrace those things as part of our calling to bring the gospel here to our world. But however, the important part I want to note here today is that God can supernaturally heal. Ephesians 3.20 says this, God is able to abundantly more than we are able to ask or even think according to the power within us. Like if your view of God is not that big, like if you try to put God in this little bitty box, okay, and expect him to perform according to your own expectations, like no, Paul says he is so much bigger than your box. Like he's going to blow up that box, actually. You can't even imagine or think about how big our God is. And so as we keep that in mind, as we see the ministry of Jesus, right, I want to expect us as a church to say, how, how can this take place here? Right? Can, can we, should we expect these things to happen still among us today? Well, apparently so. This is how we're going to end our time today, looking at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And I'm going to ask something of you guys this morning. Beginning in verse 13, in the book of James. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. 
It's page 1199 in the Red Pew Bibles, if you have one. Is anyone among you suffering? I'm reading from the ESV translation of my paper. Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power, and it is working. Now, hearing these verses, and also knowing that even Christians who are not leaders in the church, can receive gifts of healing. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9, um, there's something too of importance here in James's words that we're going to actually practice this morning. Um, I'm going to call up Derek, if uh, you can join us here on stage. The elders present, could you guys kind of be ready, available forward? But also, I'm asking everybody else to be available this morning as well. Um, there's many ways to walk away from a sermon like this, okay? I, I want to state this. If, if you're throughout your life, that Monday through, you know, seven days a week, uh, being a Christian is your 20, this is your identity. You carry the spirit wherever you go. My challenge to you is this. If you know someone in your family who is sick, suffering, we're talking emotionally, physically, wherever the sickness may be found, my challenge to you is this. Okay, read the Gospels. Almost on every single page, you're going to see evangelism, sharing the Gospel, being paired with supernatural healing. Would you be so bold to approach that person in your life and say, would you mind that I pray for you? I've never had somebody tell me no, by the way. I've never had somebody say, like, no, you can't pray for me. No. If somebody's suffering... They know they're in need. You got to recognize when people flocked Jesus, they heard that he was healing people. It was because they knew that they needed help. They were at their wits end. It says, I have nowhere else to turn. No doctors have helped me. I don't have any money. I don't Wherever the situations were, they, they flocked to him because they were aware of their need. Those who are suffering are more acutely aware of their need. And that is so often when people finally bend their knee to Christ because they say, I don't know where to turn. Right? But instead of just telling them about the gospel, my challenge to you is pray for them, that God would heal them and show them that he is indeed present, that the gospel is real. You may be surprised what happens as you do so. But for this morning, um, as we'll have our elders available and Derek will play some soft music, um, I want to ask anybody, not right now, but I'm preparing you for this, that if you're in this room and you are in need of prayer this morning, of healing, whether you are physically in need of healing, whether emotionally, whether you're just in a mode of crisis in life, you need deliverance in your life, whatever it might be, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. In a moment, don't stand yet. I want to ask you to stand. I'm trying to have you prepare and pray for the courage if you're just kind of shy this morning. Um, right now, pray for the courage to stand. As you're doing so, I want to look at James. James paired... Uh, uh, sin with conversations of healing. I don't believe it means every single time if, if you're suffering in life it's because of sin, but apparently James recognized that nah, it often can be, right? 
Sometimes we're suffering in life, it can be tied to things like bitterness, an unforgiving heart, uh, destructive habits that have indeed brought harm onto your life that you just feel completely enslaved to and stuck to. And so as you're sitting here thinking, maybe should I stand, should I not? Um, my questions are, are, are you harboring bitterness? Is anybody harboring bitterness this morning? Is anybody just har- harboring unforgiving, uh, an unforgiving spirit this morning? Do you need prayer to be delivered from that this morning? If you're physically suffering, is there something like that in your life? And maybe the answer is no, and you're still like, I just still need prayer. I still need healing this morning. I'm still going to encourage you to stand. And so if that is you this morning, can I be so bold to ask you to stand right where you are this morning? Amen. Now, there might be more of you. What I'm going to ask this morning is you're free to come forward for our elders to pray for you, but those sitting around right now, can you look and see who's standing next to you and Maybe you're the one to also stand up right now and pray for them. Maybe God has given you the gift to say, you know, I, I want to go and pray and lay my hands on, you know, on their shoulders and say, can I pray for you this morning? So um, elders, on the, uh, Derek's on the play for a few minutes. So elders are here up front if you want to come forward to receive, to receive prayer as well. We're going to close our service this way. We're not going to have an ending psalm. We're going to close our service in this time of ministry now. Um, remember that Jesus called the disciples first. He sent many out for ministry. So this is also for you this morning if you want to be prayed for and you to stand up and pray for the person sitting next to you. So, um, yeah, come forward or some of you stand and pray for those standing now. And um, if you're also sitting and there's people sick in your life that maybe you need to pick up and call, want to pray for over the phone, whoever it might be, um, let's spend this time in prayer. So, Yes. And my add, if, as we're praying, okay, and, and if there's healing that takes place in your life or in those you're praying for, please tell us. We want to celebrate God's work in our life. We want to celebrate God's activity in our lives. And as we're doing this, if you're, um, you know, you can feel free to quietly exit at any point um, as this is going to conclude our sermon today. So.